0: Offer valid on select AK systems through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
2: Tapeheads is a production of iHeartMedia and the NFL. Welcome to a brand new edition of Tapeheads Draft Season. We are only, as we record this and drop it to you, about a day and a half away from the cards being turned in it is almost time to finally pull the curtain on this 2022 NFL draft. It's been a long time coming. Bob Weschusen, long-time radio voice of the New York Jets, also college football for ESPN, and Greg Cosell for over four decades, breaking down the all-22 at NFL Films. And Greg, we spent a lot of time in the episode that dropped on Tuesday about all of the position groups Certainly focusing on the first round, ran again through the pass rushers, the corners, the tackles, some one-offs like Kyle Hamilton at safety and Tyler Linderbaum as a, as a center. The wide receiver class, really intriguing um, in this draft as well. The one position group that we saved for today that we didn't talk extensively about in our last episode, the quarterbacks. And the quarterbacks always are the position that – and you've said this from the moment we started this podcast – there are two drafts. There's a draft for all the positions in the NFL, and then there's a draft for the quarterbacks, right? It's a, the value of the quarterback changes the math for teams in terms of how they take a guy that might be a question mark and evaluate their need of that player. And so that's why you hear every year people that analyze the draft saying, well, they reached. They reached. Well, that's because teams are so desperate to get their hands on a franchise guy That if they see a player they even have a little bit of belief in, you know, that player at any other position group might be a second or third round pick. If he's a quarterback, he's probably going to go in the top 10. And you mentioned Malik Willis as the jumping off point in our last episode of the guy you think has the highest ceiling physically and maybe a reach player. But at least before we get to the specific names, let's start with why teams are having a tough time with this class. And. You know, when you evaluate what a player does in college, you know, has to do in the NFL as a quarterback, it that's a tough evaluation for some of these teams to
3: make. Yeah, that is part of of the, the process, which is really, really difficult, Bob, because ultimately what you see in college football are a lot of, I don't want to say simple things because that would be really, you know, minimizing what, what coaches do. And I don't want to do that the game is not quite as detailed and as nuanced at the college level for many reasons as it is at the NFL level. And if you draft a quarterback high and essentially, if you do, he's going to be your starter as a rookie. Those days where you draft a quarterback in the top five, let's say, and he doesn't play those days are over. So if you draft a quarterback that way and you have to play him, then What can he execute at a level that allows you to run your offense? And that becomes a big question because a lot of these quarterbacks in college are not asked to do things that are a direct correlation with what they're going to be ideally asked to do in the NFL. And I've had this conversation with quarterback coaches is you have to then run an offense that they're comfortable with so that they can feel good and that they can execute And obviously it limits what you can do with your playbook and in some ways makes you much easier to defend. So there's a balance there. And then the second part of that question, Bob, is how long does it take for the quarterback to then learn so that the playbook can be truly expanded and your offense can become far more multidimensional and you can do more things that pressure and stress defenses. And this is all part of the equation. We can all see when a guy has a big arm. We can all see when a guy has great athletic talent. That's not the difficult part of the equation. The equation is, has to do with subtlety, nuance,
2: detail. And I understand what you're saying. And I've made this kind of analogy to people before. I'll see if you agree with it, where again, you don't want to insult the intelligence, the complexity of playing college quarterback. Right. Right? Like, it's hard to play quarterback in the SEC. It's hard to play quarterback in the Big Ten. It's hard to play quarterback anywhere. Yeah. I mean, you're going up against really, really talented players, and they're trying to fool you, and you're trying to fool them. And there's a lot of check with me in college. There's a lot of pre-snap, post-snap diagnosis. I mean, you're the the analogy I've used before, it's almost like you're taking high school or college-level calculus I couldn't do that, right? Like, you need to be really smart to do that. But now you're going to the NFL. Now we're asking you, can you be like a NASA scientist? Right. Right. So what you're doing in high school and college, still hard, still difficult. Very few people can do it. But now to go to the NFL and execute mentally at the level of a Matthew Stafford, of a Tom Brady, of an Aaron Rodgers, of a Russell Wilson, right? The guys that we know can computerize you know, Patrick Mahomes, the guys that can look at a defense and see before the snap, no matter how many times you try and change the picture, I got it. I see what you're in. I know where I'm going. I know how I'm going to fool you. In the NFL, that's a whole different level of brain power. And you're right. I mean, you don't want to insult the level of intelligence of a college quarterback. Still hard to do, but the NFL and, and again, trying to, as a general manager and a coach, take the guy from college and figure out, can this guy do that? at the NFL level, and
3: how hard that is. There's a lot more for want of a better term right now, easy throws in college that can help a quarterback if if you feel that he's a little uncomfortable. Don't forget, you can always throw a bubble or a tunnel screen to the wide side of the screen, wide side of the field in college football, because it's so wide. Those are easy completions. The one thing that, and I know we spoke about this probably five or six weeks ago, but the other thing that is really a major adjustment for quarterbacks coming into the NFL And you've got to deal with this as a coach in how you design your pass game and call your plays, particularly in critical type situations, third and eight, third and nine, is you have to make throws in the middle of the field in the NFL. In college, you don't have to make anywhere near the number of throws in the middle of the field. And the middle of the field is tight because the hash marks are closer together in the NFL So those throws, it looks like there's a hell of a lot of defenders there, Bob. It probably looks like there's 15 defenders sitting in the middle of the field. Some quarterbacks are never comfortable with that as they advance in their NFL career because it's just those are really difficult throws. So there's so many things that go beyond just a simple list of traits. Oh, he can spin it. You know, we know Matt Corral can spin it. We know that Malik Willis has a hand cannon. We know this, but it goes way beyond that to determine whether quarterbacks will be successful at the NFL level.
2: And accuracy.
3: Yeah. right, Like being able to throw the ball and basically hit a dinner plate
2: from 25 yards away throwing with anticipation how many great quarterbacks in the nfl do you see the ball is out of their hands not even before a wide receiver gets his head around before a wide receiver even gets to like the stem of his route the ball is out of the quarterback's hand because he knows the spot of the field that ball has to be delivered to
3: where that player is going to eventually end up that is a bob you just hit on an unbelievable point and i'm glad you did because I learned this from Ron Jaworski, who I started working with maybe in 1989 or 90. They're spot throws. Jaws used to tell me that there were certain throws, and I'm not just talking about 40-yard throws. I'm talking about like a deeper out or certain throws. He said, I could have had a blindfold on and made those throws because I practiced them so much, and I'm throwing to a spot. And... That's something you don't see a lot of in college football. So you're 100% right. There are throws that you have to turn loose. Your receiver hasn't even turned around yet. I had a great discussion years and years ago with Steve Young about the same thing in Bill Walsh's offense. He said, I did not become a great quarterback until I understood that I had to throw the ball to a spot before my receiver was even close to that spot. And I just had to understand that he was going to be there and that spot was going to be open. And until I really understood that intuitively, I really couldn't become a great quarterback. So yep. you're right. Those kinds of things don't happen very often in college at all.
2: And along those lines, the, the that phrase, throwing a guy open. Yeah. Right. I, I worked with Brian Greasy for a couple of years doing college football for ESPN and had a lot of great conversations with him about quarterback play and what your eyes have to be able to tell you, pre-snap, post-snap, yep. all of that. You know, Brock Ewer, Dan Orlovsky, like guys that have played quarterback at a very high level. And I remember Greasy saying... That in high school, a wide receiver was open when he would run a post, run a slant, you pick the route, run a nine route, and he would have like seven or eight, ten feet of separation between right. he and the guy covering him. And then I got to college and realized, well, if that guy's got about a yard of separation, then he's open. Like, I still have to deliver an accurate ball. Maybe the defensive back catches up, but I can see he's open. He's got about a yard, a sliver of room. In the NFL, I had to throw balls to guys I couldn't see. Right. Because they were open. Right. Because that's the NFL version of being open. I can't even see the guy I'm throwing to. That's how tight the coverage is. But you know what? By NFL standards, he's open, and I have to be
3: able to make that throw. And that's why, and again, I'm not the only one, but that's why I always, when I take notes about a quarterback, use the terms either ball placement or ball location, which theoretically becomes a subset of accuracy, you know, because you have to be so precise with certain throws with your ball location that you nailed it. I mean, if it's man coverage, you know, It's funny. I remember again, you know, not to name drop and all that, but I love these conversations. This is what I try to do so I can learn. I remember years ago having a conversation with Troy Aikman who may have been as accurate a thrower as we've seen for a guy that had a power arm. Um, And he said, Hey, if it's man to man coverage, and your receivers are not getting open, you, know, you still have to throw the ball because it's man coverage, he says, then you need new receivers, not a new quarterback. But the fans always think it's the quarterback's fault. And because there's just, you know, receivers have to create just enough space, and it's not a lot of space, but it's just enough space where the quarterback can place the ball, and you have to be able to do that as a quarterback at the NFL level. If you can't do that, you're going to miss too many throws.
2: I remember Brock Eward backed up Peyton in Indy for two or three years. Tom Moore was the offensive coordinator. And I remember Brock Eward had a whole bunch of Tom Moore catchphrases (laughs) that, you know, were like, you know, the crumbs lead to the cookie, check down to touchdown, all these things, you know, that he would go to explaining like the simplicity of football, concepts behind what we're calling. And I remember one of the things that Brock said Tom Moore always went to, said, look, guys, the media – the fans, a play doesn't work. Everyone kills the play caller, right? Like what a dumb play call. Everybody buries the offensive coordinator, fire the offensive coordinator. What's he do calling that play? Said, look, here's my job. My job is to get you a one-on-one. Right. That's my job. If I call a play and I get you a one-on-one, I did my job. Right. Win. You gotta go win it. So if I get you, wide receiver, a one-on-one, hey, quarterback, I got wide receiver a one-on-one. He has to win, and you have to win by delivering the football. If you guys can't do that, then I don't care what plays I call. Right. Right? Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we we scheme up, what's on the whiteboard. You know, and, and that's the challenge in the NFL. You're going against the best defensive players in the world as well. And so, yes, my job as a play caller is to get you a one-on-one, and I'll do it. At some point, though, that one-on-one, you have to go win it or none of this is going to work. And that's why it's really hard to find guys talented enough to do this. Yep. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk about the actual prospects. Because you've got your top five quarterback prospects for this draft. Yep. The final look, before we start hearing those names getting called on Thursday, if your team needs a quarterback... You are going to want to hear what Greg Cosell's final analysis of this class of signal callers brings to the
0: table. We're going to do that when we come back on Tapehead's draft season. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower,
4: <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days, like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? So if you're gonna be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG
2: and shop all their performance fishing gear. All right, Bob of Great Coast Cell, back. Tapeheads draft season, kind of our final analysis pushing towards the first round on Thursday night. The, the draft is finally here. And Greg, again, on in our first episode that dropped on Tuesday this week, we touched on all of the other big position groups and kind of left the quarterbacks still on the tree. Today's the day we get to pick the tree. You get to pick the fruit and tell everyone your top quarterback prospects, how high you think they may go, and who is really worthy of being a top-of-the-first-round pick. Let's start with the guy that I think, as you said, even in our last episode, might be the biggest mystery, the biggest X factor, you know, that that raw material that if you're a, a quarterback coach or offense offensive coordinator, you probably love to get your hands on and see if you can mold this clay, and that's Malik Willis. Yeah,
3: and, and I think, as I said, the reason I believe that's the case is the feeling that he can make those special plays that you can't teach. I mean, he certainly has the athletic and throwing traits to make special plays off secondary action movement. He's an explosive athlete. He's an explosive mover. He has a great arm. Uh, So now you start to think, okay, I draft him, and I get into a third and nine in a critical situation. The defense calls a great pressure concept, and, and my quarterback has to move because the defense won early in the down. Malik Willis can then do something, and that something might be very special. I think that's the way a lot of people start to think now. But then you have to balance that with can he run the offense snap after snap after snap with needed efficiency because that's the balance. That's what you have to figure out. He's a really good pure thrower of the football. We know he has a strong arm. He's an easy, natural thrower. We've seen him make touch throws. We've seen him make velocity throws. We've seen him make intermediate throws. We've seen him make vertical throws. There's a lot there with Malik Willis. So you can say that it's raw talent, Bob, versus the refinement nuance discipline. That's the paradigm. And there's no answer to that until you get him to a team and a coach. And that's why I've always been a big believer in coaching at the quarterback position, even at the NFL level.
2: Is there a team or a coach that you think is the right spot for Malik Willis, at least in the range where you think he actually might get drafted, right? I mean, obviously, if you could take him all the way back at the end of the first round and sit him behind Matthew Stafford or sit him behind Tom Brady and let him run, those teams probably are not going to be drafting high enough where Malik Willis is still going to be on the board, right? You got to think a team, if not the top 10, certainly the top 15 is going if Malik Willis is there to say the talent is just too much to pass up, I want that player and we want to see what we can do with him. Where, what's the ideal spot for him in the targeted range of teams you think might draft Malik Willis?
3: That's a great question because in an ideal world and the, and the world is never ideal when it comes to quarterbacks, as we know, we can all remember the Jaguars drafting Blake Bortles and saying, he's never going to see a snap as a rookie. And then we, three he's playing yeah they all play yeah or the Bears (laughs) drafting Trubisky and saying oh he's he's not going to see the field his first season and then he's starting week three or four so we know that if Malik Willis is a top 10 draft choice he is going to play as a rookie somewhere along the line so let's assume that that's the case you know I think Carolina comes into play at six because I, I know Ben McAdoo is there and you know I People may have their own opinions of Ben McAdoo, but he's a very good quarterback coach. He spent a good amount of time in Green Bay as the quarterback coach for Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, he was with the Giants. He had the one year they made the playoffs with Eli, and then the second year he got fired. I know he benched Eli, and that was you know big news, obviously, in New York. But Ben McAdoo's been doing this a long time. He's a very good quarterback coach. He understands the position extremely well. So that would be a good fit because it comes down to who the coach is because Malik Willis, and again, it's not his fault, but the offense he ran in college was not the kind of offense he'll run in the NFL. He will have a transition to learn a lot of things that are needed to be learned to play quarterback at the NFL level. And by the way, most college quarterbacks do some less than others because of what they were asked to do in college. But certainly Malik Willis will be one of those that needs to learn a lot simply because of what he was asked to do in college.
2: All right. If he's got the highest ceiling, the player that we have all said from day one probably is the most finished NFL ready product is Kenny Pickett. So do you see his talent level, his ceiling, because he's probably the most known entity, right? Like, because he is as finished a product as he is, you might have a much better feel for how good he actually can be. Do teams think that he can be worthy of being a top 10 pick? Will a team possibly reach for Kenny Pickett, figuring they'll just get to the finish line with him faster than maybe they will with any of these other guys?
3: And I got to tell you, I'm struggling with with Kenny Pickett, not, not with my evaluation, which I'll tell you in a moment, But with so many conversations I've had, Kenny Pickett is all over people's boards. I mean, I know people that say he's a third-round pick. I know people that think he's a really good prospect and in some ways compare him to Joe Burrow. And I'm trying to figure out why people don't see Kenny Pickett as a good prospect or as a higher-level prospect. And by the way, I'm not suggesting... Talent wise, no one is saying, even if you really like him, as I do, no one's saying he's Josh Allen or Patrick Mahomes. So let's let's clear that up right away. But I think when you watch Kenny Pickett's tape from 2021, I think you see a profile that has all the elements that are demanded at the NFL level. He has vision, he has progression reading skills, he has anticipation, he throws with timing. The ball placement is pretty precise it's not let's say as precise as consistently as Mac Jones from a year earlier but it's precise he has the athleticism and mobility to make second reaction plays he's big he's over 6'3 he weighs 220 so there's a physical element to his game he's very well schooled in NFL route concepts does he have a gun no he doesn't have a gun Is his hand size a concern because he did fumble a lot? Perhaps it is. But I think that Kenny Pickett is a good prospect. Now, I've heard GMs and and evaluators tell me, well, is he the guy that you're going to want to give big money to for a second contract? That's a hard question to answer because right. you don't know where he's going to go, who he's going to be playing with, and who's going to coach him. But I think when you put on his 2021 tape, you see a quarterback who has NFL traits that can play at a relatively high level. All right, Matt
2: Corral, right? And- I mean, he, he seems to be kind of almost a hybrid of Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett, kind of somewhere in the middle. Like his physical capability, his arm strength, his athleticism might be superior to Kenny Pickett, but not as good as Malik Willis. But he probably is more of a finished quarterback prospect at this point than Malik Willis, but maybe not as polished as Kenny Pickett, right? He seems to check a lot of boxes, But has an incomplete grade in a lot of different areas, have there been a lot of varying opinions on Matt Corral for you?
3: Absolutely. And and I'll give you mine because that's all I can do because I studied him last summer and I studied him quite a bit this year. Well, you
2: Um, have the only opinion I care about. So that's fine. Well, thank you. I would say (laughs) that that should be the one we
3: get. I mean, he ran a highly schemed tempo, high percentage, defined one read pass game. Very strong emphasis on quick rhythm throws off play action and run pass option, RPOs, and the occasional deep shot. Now, obviously, with any quarterback who throws it a lot, you will see NFL route concepts. So, yes, did you see that with Matt Corral in Lane Kiffin's offense? Of course you did. But that was more the exception than the rule. So this gets into the discussion of here's what he ran in college. Now, what do you do with him in the NFL? Because in the NFL, as you know, Bob, you can't live off RPOs and you can't live off just quick game throws. And he ran a lot by design in college, which he will not do. Now, here's something that really struck me. He came in at six, one and five eighths. I was blown away by that because I think when I watched his tape and the way in which he threw the ball with kind of a low angle because he's got a very compact delivery, I thought he was going to come in at six feet at most because he throws low. And that to me is, I don't want to say it means he can't play, but think of Drew Brees, a six-foot quarterback. Now, as I said, Corral's 6'1 and 5'8", but think of Drew Brees sort of getting up on his toes and throwing over the top. We, you can probably picture that. You know, Corral threw with that kind of tight snap, compact delivery that was low. And I'm wondering how that's going to play in the league in those quick game kinds of throws when he has to throw between the numbers and between the hashes. Again, a question, not saying he can't do it. It's just something I think you have to discuss. We've talked about
2: three. We've got two more to go. We'll take a quick break and then maybe get kind of that wide angle lens of the teams we think are most likely to get one of these quarterbacks that are in most need of one of these quarterbacks and could all five possibly go in the first round. We've talked about three, two more to go and a wide-angle look at the quarterback class
0: when we come back on Tapehead's Draft Season. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. What's up? I'm John Wall.
4: And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA six Man of the Year, elite bucket getter, let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game. King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have ticked it off? I'm going to be
0: honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He
3: don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the exactly. Olympics, he's going to guard. And then
0: on I'm top of that. like that, see that?
4: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Casella, to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying, <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. His, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember
0: you what know? I told you? I said, I said OG, oh, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college you it it?
4: <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days, like literally.
2: Bob shoes and Greg Cosell back on Tapehead's draft season. It's almost draft night, and the quarterbacks, they are always the hottest of topics, even in a year where the quarterback class isn't thought to be that deep. And this is certainly a year where we may get five quarterbacks going in the first round. You might get guys slipping into the second round or beyond. Who knows? We talked about three, Greg, a moment ago. Two more kind of on that top-tier list. And you mentioned Drew Brees setting the standard for you know, it seemed like for the last 15 years, anytime a quarterback was too short or thought to be too short, everyone said, well, Drew Brees, right? Drew Brees, look, look at Drew Brees. He can do this at six feet tall. There's a reason that Drew Brees was the outlier. Or there's a reason that the teams didn't draft six foot tall quarterbacks because for the longest time, he was the only guy doing it, basically. But then along came Russell Wilson. That led to guys like Kyler Murray and and Baker Mayfield getting drafted with the top overall pick. So quarterbacks are definitely thought of differently now than they were even five, seven, eight years ago. So Sam Howell from North Carolina, I think a very interesting prospect because the first thing you're going to see is Sam Howell looks like a short quarterback by NFL standards. Can he overcome that maybe in the same way that Matt Corral can?
3: And it's funny you say that because... Well, that's what teams do. They look at track record. They look at what's been successful and what hasn't been, Bob. And they see that Sam Howell is six feet tall. And if he's to be successful in the NFL, even though he does have movement ability, he's not Russell Wilson. He's not Kyler Murray. He's going to have to be successful as a pocket quarterback. And then you look back in the history of the league, just as you said, how many six foot quarterbacks have been really successful? We know Breeze, first ballot Hall of Famer. Baker Mayfield's in a total state of limbo right now, and he's in a state of limbo because he hasn't had the success that was expected. So now you look at Sam Howell, who has some very positive traits, by the way, but he's a six foot pocket quarterback. And that's where the rub comes in. That's where people pause because history suggests that that's a very difficult thing to do to be a six foot pocket quarterback and succeed. Desmond Ritter, right? A totally different
2: physical, you know, specimen than Sam Howell. He's kind of the taller, lankier, skinnier quarterback. Still a very good athlete, but, you know, he's going to have to be to protect himself because he looks like a guy that could potentially at the NFL get broken in half. At the same time, I know you've talked to teams who believe that Desmond Ritter, all of the character traits around him
3: make him really intriguing as well. Yeah. And Desmond Ritter is one of those guys when you talk to coaches, the first thing they do is point to their head and because they say he's wired right. And that's very important at the quarterback position. And I think Ritter's one of those guys that has clear flaws, Bob, on tape, clear flaws. I mean, he's by no means a perfect prospect. He's got a little bit of an elongated delivery. There's a lot of motion in his delivery that impacted his ball placement. He had a tendency to drop his arm angle. And again, impacting ball placement. So he missed too many layups. And that's an obvious concern. You can't miss layups in the NFL and be a higher level quarterback. But there's also a poise to to Ritter, a composure to Ritter. There's a sense of, of him understanding how to play the position. He will stay in the pocket. He does not just leave the pocket, even though he has mobility. He ran a well-structured pass game. You saw NFL throws. So there's There's much to like about Desmond Ritter, but if he does not clean up the ball placement issues, the rest doesn't matter because you can do everything right as a quarterback and you can have great poise, great composure, Bob, but if you can't throw the ball where you want to, especially in the NFL, then we know you can't play. So Ritter is one of those guys that people really like because they really like him and they think there's something there, as do I, by the way. But when all said and done, the, those issues must be cleaned up or it's going to be difficult for him to be a consistent starter in the league. Right, we've touched on all the guys.
2: That's really kind of the top five. We're not the mock draft podcast, so to speak. But do you believe that these are first-round worthy players? If of the five, if that's so, how many? And where do you think some of these players may fall? What teams... Uh, The quarterback needy teams, do you think, are going to be in a position where they're going to be convinced that one of these five players is for them? Fascinating
3: question, because you have what you hope someone could be versus what someone is now with the belief that he may not get a whole lot better. So, and I'm talking about, of course, Malik Willis and Kenny Pickett, and I'm looking at a Carolina at six. You know, Matt Rule, and again, I don't know what the owner thinks. There's a general feeling that Matt Rule's on the clock. I don't discuss whether, you know, that with coaches at all. That's not my thing. But if that's true, then the question becomes, do they want to go into the season with Sam Darnold as their starting quarterback? You know Sam Darnold very well from his time with the Jets. He really hasn't changed much from day one through year four. So do they want to do that? Or do they feel, hey, if we draft Kenny Pickett, we have someone we can line up with tomorrow, and maybe that gives us a, a little breathing room. I think Atlanta at eight has far too many needs. They did sign Marcus Mariota. Not that he's the answer per se, but they have so many needs. Then you get to, you know, I think Houston is fine with Davis Mills. What is Seattle going to do? Right. I think that's they're the, they're the wild card to me. I agree with that because they could draft a quarterback clearly, or they could not based on maybe Pete Carroll thinking, Hey, let's really shore up that defense. We re-sign Rashad Penny. We're going to play old school football and run the ball. They could easily think that there's Pittsburgh at, I guess Pittsburgh's a 20. Obviously they signed Mitchell Trubisky. It's a two year deal. It's not a big money deal. They could easily look to a quarterback of the future. So, you know, I think there's teams that you could easily say would be in the market for a quarterback. And just as you said, when we started all of this, the question becomes, if you don't have one, you know, let, let's put it this way, taking nothing away from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Are they in the minds of most people? You know, you, you work in the, in the AFC doing the Jets. Are the Pittsburgh Steelers competing with Cincinnati, Buffalo, Chargers, Kansas City, are they competing at that level with Mitchell Trubisky? Right. Not anytime soon. Right. So, and I don't think it's no knock on anybody. I think we're just talking facts here. So if that's the case, then do they look at a quarterback and maybe this isn't the year in their mind, but do they look at a quarterback and say, God, if if we draft Sam Howell and we think he can really reach his potential, we just think he's better than Mitchell Trubisky. And obviously I'm just throwing that out. Well, no, I mean, I think I think the point is, and you can almost take that theme
2: and apply it to like seven other teams Correct in the top 15, right? Like the Texans. Do they really believe in Davis Mills? They have a quarterback. Do they really believe in Davis Mills, right? Do the Falcons really believe in Marcus Mariota? Do the Seahawks really believe in Drew Locke? Does Washington really believe in Carson Wentz? Do the right. Vikings really believe... In a player that you know, I think has basically been the embodiment of eight and eight, nine and seven, walking his entire career in Kirk Cousins. Right. right. I mean, I don't care what numbers he puts up. Every team he's on is right around five hundred. Maybe a game over. Maybe a game under. He's a five hundred quarterback. Basically, that that's what he is. Like his team never never goes to the playoffs and never wins anything. And by the way, who puts up really good numbers every year? Yeah, he puts up really good numbers, but a team never goes to playoffs, never wins anything. So I I think you've got a lot of guys on this list, even the Giants with Daniel Jones. All right, they've got a young quarterback, but do they really believe in Daniel Jones? It's a whole new coaching staff, a whole new regime. So I think it's a fascinating draft from a quarterback perspective where there are not the clear-cut guys, the guys that are no-brainers to take in the top five, which is a very unusual draft. Normally, there's at least a couple of quarterbacks where everyone says, yes, this is a guy that has to go in the top 10, has to go in the top five. This guy might be the first pick in the draft. None of these guys are in that category. But also, you've got seven or eight teams picking that, It'd be fascinating to be a fly on the wall in the draft room to hear the competing opinions. Yes. When, right, when the truth serum is delivered, when there's no fear of anyone outside that room getting wind of what you're saying, where you can really speak the truth. How many of these general managers, when they lay down their head on the pillow at night, really, truly believe in the guy they've got? And what you'll find out is... If one of those teams that has a Carson Wentz or, you know, a Mitchell Trubisky or a Marcus Mariota, whatever, one of those teams, you have to imagine, is going to take one of these quarterbacks. It just always happens.
3: Yeah, and I think that your point is 100% right. I mean, look, I think Pittsburgh is really a litmus test here because Pittsburgh has some good players. They've got a good team overall, as we know and they obviously needed a quarterback cuz Big Ben retired so they signed Mitchell Trubisky but how do they feel about that given the conference that they're in and the the quarterbacks and teams that they would have to leapfrog to get to a super bowl
2: and they picked 20th right right like even the guys they want might be off the board by some of these other teams that are having that internal debate before they even get a chance to pull the trigger on a quarterback. It, it is going to be fascinating. And look, it's finally here, right? We're actually going to get some answers <laughs> in the not-too-distant future, thankfully. We are back tomorrow. We'll have a full week of Tapehead's draft season. Thursday is draft day. We will be joined by former GM Rick Spielman. He'll tell us what teams are doing in the hours leading up to making their picks and also what he has in terms of just his overall evaluation of these quarterbacks and how he thinks the top prospects are going to fall. So we'll have a former general manager on with us. Be sure to join us on Thursday when we finally arrive at draft day. And thanks for being a tapehead.
0: You go into your shower feeling tired.